Now, a lot of what I've learned over the years, I learned through tension. I learned through conflict. I learned through not knowing what I really believed. I made the observation to you last week. You've got to know what you believe. You've got to know why you believe it. And you better have a lot of good hows in your struggle. How I've really uh, wrestled through whatever the argument is that gives me this why, the motive behind it, that gives me the what of my belief system. This is crucial as we go uh, into life. When I was doing baseball chapel ministry and doing sports ministry, it could be in a locker room with the Braves or it could be a weekly Bible study with the Falcons. Now, here's something that was interesting. Oftentimes, I would walk in, and whether it was the Braves or a visiting team, I would get ready to do chapel, and I would look at guys, and I would have guys from all different types of marinades, denominational belief systems, and religious systems, if you will. Now, out of 25 guys that made up a team, if you got five or six guys to show up for chapel, that was a good thing. That was a good thing. So I would walk in, and all of a sudden, I remember my buddy Doug. Doug was a five-point Calvinist. He was studying Reformed theology with R.C. Sproul in Orlando, Florida. And there's old Doug sitting there. And then all of a sudden, my buddy Jose. Jose had come to faith in Christ, and he came from an independent, fundamental, King James only, Tennessee Temple, Bob James, uh, Bob Jones, uh, uh, Jerry Falwell flavored kind of, uh, uh, of church. And there he was sitting there. I'm like, check him out. And then you would meet a brother who came from a church of Christ. All of a sudden, this guy, man, has, has been uh, brought up in the church of Christ. They believe baptism is a must for salvation. No musical instruments. And there he's sitting there. And I'm like, beautiful. Then you would find a born-again, fired-up uh, Catholic brother sitting there. And here he's coming with all this religious uh, system that he, he, he's been marinated in for years. And you would stand there, and, and I'll never forget my buddy Gary. Gary had came to faith in Christ, and Gary uh, was going to a full gospel Pentecostal church, and Gary was a tongue talker. He would jump pews. He was always slain in the spirit, and I'm like, man, you've got them all over the map. <laughs> Come on. And so here I am going in to share the word of God, and I'm like, how do I center up on the centrality of Christ when I've got such varying views denominationally. And I can tell you, there was not a consensus of theology in that room. And really, you got to pose the question, can you have relevant and, and real authentic ministry and not have a total consensus of theology? I'm like, man, I'm about to learn something here. And God used those kind of environments to really challenge me on what I believed but also challenged me to understand where other people were coming from in their belief system. Most people that go to church oftentimes stay just in one little subculture. And so they may know what the reform teaches or what the AG teaches or what the Baptists teach. But when it comes to really being able to sit down and dialogue with people that are really saved, they, don't, they, don't, they, they can't find the common ground. All they can find is the dividing arguments. And so it's a very interesting realization. Now, let, let me illustrate it this way. I grew up in Noonan. I've made that declaration to you. And uh, I was the first cash ever to graduate from high school, which means the bar had not really been set that high. Okay. And, and so based on my pedigree, I think I'm doing okay in life today. But my grandmother's 
And both of my grandmothers uh, lived throughout my adolescence and my teenage years. And I used to love going over to my granny's house. And I would go to granny's house, and every morning, both of my grandmothers did something. Yeah, they dipped powdered snuff, and they would probably fire dip in when they got up. They did that. But both of my grannies had one of these little sifter mechanisms. And if you grew up in the South with some grannies, you probably saw some grannies make some biscuits, right? And they used lard, which would stick to you like a champ. Okay, I'll never forget the first time I saw somebody open up some of those uh, Hungry Jack biscuits and hit them over the counter. Them things just didn't taste right. (laughs) You remember that? But my granny, both of them, they they would grab this little sifter and they would grab that little bag of flour and they would pour that flour into this sifter and I would just see them standing there over a little pan and they would just be sifting through that flour. And they would just work it and work it and work it. And then all of a sudden they would shake it. And then all those little clumps that were kind of clumped together that didn't make it through the sifter, they would go over and just dump it out in the trash. And I'm like, what are you doing there? And they're like, those clumps will mess up my dough. And if it messes up the dough, the biscuits are not going to rise right, son. And you've got you've to make sure you sift through the flour. That sifter was huge. Now, Steve Trailer brought this to me. From his mother. Steve's parents are in their 90s. This thing is probably 70 years old, man. And I'm like, this is so cool. But here's the point. The word of God for the evangelical follower of Jesus Christ is the sifter that we must use as we deal with a variety of theological and denominational and religious arguments in our day. Most churches across America today have minimized and trivialized the Word of God, and it becomes one more book that they reference instead of the standard that is used in proclamation. So as we teach today, I want you to know that the Word of God is the sifter that every argument, every theological thought must be poured through when it comes to formulating your true belief system. Now, in your bulletin, I would invite you to read along with me, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul writes to Timothy, a protege. Timothy is an interesting personality. His mom and his grandmother were believers. His dad was a Greek, and Timothy had come to faith in Jesus. And Paul is telling Timothy to fan, fan into flame the gifts that he has within him. 1 Timothy 3, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Hey, I want you to know as you pastor, as you shepherd, here are the responsibilities and the qualifications for what an elder or a teacher and a pastor and a deacon is really to look like. Now, I want you to know, man, what is important. And he lays all this out. And then chapter 4, he says, Timothy, I want you to realize something. The Spirit, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, explicitly says that in the latter times... In these last days, some will fall away from the faith. They will fall away from the faith. They will fall away from the centrality of Christ in key doctrines. They're going to fall away. They will pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, now they're, they're, going to be paying, they're going to be paying attention to things that are not of God. There, there's these deceitful spirits and almost demonic-style influences that are going to come into certain people. Now, now, listen, Timothy, pay attention. Watch what's going on. The Spirit says it's going to happen. And then he says in verse 3, 
Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. There's going to be some groups that come along and they're going to say, don't get married and stay away from certain foods. Praise God, the Bible doesn't teach celibacy. I would be in a world of hurt. When Pope Gregory VII, man, in the 11th century says that priests cannot marry, I'm finding another line of another occupation. You hear me talking? This dude must have been ugly and said, you know what, man, hang with him. I'm going to come up with something that at least fits my convenience. No. (laughs) People have asked me over the years, what are you giving up for Lent? I don't celebrate Lent. I'm not giving up anything for it because God says, go ahead and eat if you want to. Come on. Anybody hungry today? What you giving up for Lent? God didn't teach Lent. Lent was one of those things I found on my jeans when mama used to take them out of the dryer. (laughs) That's Lent. Now, now Paul is saying, Timothy, listen to me. Listen, Listen now. You're going to have to pay attention. You're going to have to be on guard. Now, now, there's going to be some deceitful style teachings that are surfacing. We've established, we've established that in this postmodern culture that we live in right now, and in this world of subjective relativism and no absolute truths being established and proclaimed, and in this world of all this pluralistic style belief, all under this postmodern umbrella. Pay attention. Listen to what's going on. Listen to the teachings. See if they make it through the sifter of God's word. He goes on to say, now, Timothy, if you point out these things to the brethren, sistren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine. Sound doctrine Proper doctrine gives you proper direction. Bad doctrine gives you bad direction. Sound doctrine, you've got to know what you believe, why you believe it, how you've struggled through it. You've you've got to know the truth. Then he goes on to say, for it is for this that we labor and strive, because we fixed our hope on the living God who's the Savior of all men, especially to the believer. Jesus died for all. He's the Savior of all. All hasn't come to place faith in him, but, but he's the Savior. We're fixing our hope on this. Now prescribe and teach these things. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in these things so that your progress will be known to all. Listen, listen to this. When you take a stand on the authoritative word of God, which is the absolutes that God has laid out, in this society you will have to take pains at times. People will come at you and want to attack you. And what I've learned is if they can discredit the messenger, they don't have to listen to the message. And what they're trying to get rid of in our day is the message of God. And so we don't want to hear what the message says. So we're going to poke holes in the messenger to eliminate. Now, what he's saying is you're going to have to take some pains. If you stand on absolute truth, do it in love. Do it with great gentleness and reverence. But you're going to, you're going to take some hints at times. You're going to be shot at at times. You're going, to, you're going to be attacked at times. And he says, now, pay attention to yourself. Watch, watch what you're teaching. And then he goes on to say, pay close attention to yourself. Pay close attention to your teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do this... You will ensure salvation both for yourself and also for those 
who hear. So here's the question I'm posing. Is Catholicism and Christianity the same? No, they're not the same. And there's a lot of fundamental breakdowns as we get into it. Two of my closest friends during my sports ministry days, and they're still very dear friends to me today. One was named Mike Sweeney. Mike came from an Irish Catholic family from California. Mike is one of eight kids, okay? They didn't believe in celibacy either. But Mike is a, just a strong, strong friend of mine. The other one is John Smoltz. John grew up Polish Catholic in Michigan. So I've got two of my buddies that both are coming out of Catholicism, one Irish, one Polish, but both are underneath the Roman Catholic umbrella. I'll never forget as we started dialoguing, and me and Mike Sweeney did this years ago. Mike Sweeney loves Jesus. John Smoltz loves Jesus. Mike Sweeney has stayed in the Catholic Church. Mike Sweeney has started an evangelical arm of sharing Christ in the Catholic Church. But Mike and I sat down years ago, and I said, Mike, let's talk about, let's talk about some of the fundamental teachings and maybe some things here, man, that we need to just explore together. I did not say I wanted to talk about Christianity versus Catholicism because that becomes almost a defending, you, you want to defend your position. I said, let's talk about biblical truth versus traditions of man, and let's see what God has to say. And I went to the Vatican.com and looked at the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church so that we could do an exploring autopsy on each of the teachings to see what is being said and does it make it through, come on, does it make it through the sifter? Do the Catholics have a lot of traditions? Yes, but can I tell you something? So do the Baptists, and so do the Pentecostals, and so do the Presbyterians, and so do the Methodists, and so, come on, everybody out there has, has, has got these traditions that if they're not careful, they start to worship. You read uh, Barna's book that he did with a guy by the name of uh, Frank Viola. It's called Pagan Christianity. Where did the podium come from? Where did the robes come from? Where did the stained glass windows come from? And there's a lot of things, even in some of these other denominational circles that people bow to, that came out of pagan practices that all of a sudden became the standard that you were, you were to have in church. Barb and I got married in a Methodist church up in Nashville. And we were going to get married down front like most people do. But the lady that was the wedding coordinator said, you cannot move that podium. That podium must stay right where it's at. That is anointed by God and it cannot be moved. I'm like, stay hot. But do you ever, you ever see how people have these sacred cows that they equate to be in biblical truth and they are not? They're not. They're not. So I, I want to educate you today. This is a teaching to educate you as we continue. So true Christianity is defined by certain doctrines in the word of God that must be submitted to by us. Now, we've talked about some of those over the last weeks. Go back and watch those messages. But when a person says, I believe in Jesus, it doesn't necessarily mean they're a Christian. Even James would write and say, the demons believe, but they tremble. De demons are not repentant. Demons are not responding to the grace and gospel. Demons are fallen. Demons believe, and we establish, even from a JW position and a Mormon position, they say, oh, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but what do you mean by that? So just saying that you believe, what does that mean? 
The demons believe. And so belief is more this radical repentance and this pursuit of God and this response to the grace of the gospel and realizing, man, I don't deserve it. I don't earn it. I can't merit any of this, man. It's, it's a beautiful thing. But what does it mean to believe? It says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, sons of God. So it's receiving him as Lord and master. So this is important to know. Now, do Catholics and evangelicals have some beliefs that they share in common? Yeah. They, they would say, we believe that, that there is one God, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. We'd say, yeah. They also believe that Jesus was born of a virgin and he was sinless as he lived. We would say, yes. They also believe, and we would say, yes, we agree, that Jesus went to the cross and became the payment for sin. And that he was raised on the third day. Yeah, there's there, there some similarities there. And so it's interesting to know that there are some things that you say that we, we've got some common ground that we can talk about here. But the differences are many. The differences are many. Look at even uh, one of the, the, the commandments in Exodus. You shall have no other gods before me. That, that's a teaching for us as followers of God, no other gods. Another teaching would be a justification through faith alone based on the grace of God, and that's how we come to be clean before God. The Catholics have elevated Mary and the saints and given Mary and the saints godlike capabilities. So when you start to study that you shall have no other gods before me, you have to be dead before you can be canonized to become a saint in the Catholic Church. Now, 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 God says that I'm a saint. Based on Philippians 1 and based on Ephesians 1 and based on Romans 1, 7, there's all these Paul and Timothy to the saints. Who's the saint? A holy one. What is a holy one? A person who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, repented. God says, hey, Saint Tim, you're preaching today. That, that's what God calls it. I, I, I died to myself. And when I died to myself and came alive in Christ, I became a saint. But the Catholic Church has elevated Mary and elevated Andrew and Christopher and others to this place. And they said, these are saints. And so when you, when you pray oftentimes, they will say, fire up a candle and pray to one of these saints. You shall have no other gods before me. One, one of the interesting things is this. I want you to hear this. Okay? One of the interesting things is this. Mary... And the Catholic Church is called a mediatrix, okay? We know that Jesus is the mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one advocate. But Mary, if you look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 969, it says the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the title of advocate, helper, and mediatrix, meaning she's right there by Jesus, now, hold on. You shall have no other gods before me. It goes on to say that Mary brings us the gifts of eternal salvation. If you continue to read this paragraph, it says, Taken into heaven, Mary did not lay aside her saving office, but her manifold intercession continues to bring gifts of eternal salvation to people. Now, no, no, no. Jesus plus nothing brings us salvation. And, and so as soon as we start to eat, he, he, he just raise her up and equate her close to Jesus. We go, hold on, man. That's not what the scripture says right there. 
Now, was she given an incredible assignment to house God in her womb and to give birth to Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Incredible assignment. But she came out of the Adamic sin pool just like you and I did. Her nature was mom and dad who had inherited the Adamic nature of being sinners. And so she was born just like you and I. But it's interesting. If you go on to read, it says Mary, even paragraph 966 in the catechism, Mary delivers souls from death. You, Mary, conceive the living God, and by your prayers, you will deliver souls from death. Many of my friends grew up doing the Hail Marys and the rosaries and all these other things. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed are thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. And so when you start to ask Mary, who's just a a person like you and I, and you raise her to this sainthood as mediatrix, as advocate, as a go-between between God and man, that is a very, very bad doctrine. You go on to read. I mean, there's other things that, you know, by asking Mary to pray for us, this is paragraph 2677 out of the catechism. We acknowledge ourselves to be poor sinners and we address ourselves to Mary, the mother of mercy, the all holy one. And we give ourselves over to her for her to be able to take us to God. Did y'all know that? So I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Tennessee yesterday and I'm staying with this couple and my buddy Marty and his wife Leslie and she's like, so, you know, you ready to teach tomorrow? I said, I hope so. And, and, and she says, what are you teaching? And so I started to share with her. And she said, I grew up Catholic. And I said, can I bounce some of this off of you? And as I started reading through what the catechism and what Vatican statements had said, she looked at me and said, I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that. So reality is probably 98% of the Catholics don't know what the deeper teachings of Catholicism is. But the sad thing is about 95% of evangelicals that call themselves Christ followers don't even know what they believe. So it's a crazy tension in the culture in which we live. We live in a world now where there's going to be more and more Hispanic uh, families living next door to us. A lot of these Hispanic families, Mike and I were talking about this yesterday. A lot of these families, man, are coming out of predominant Catholic families. And Catholic backgrounds. And so I want to know how to share the hope that I have. I'm not here to beat them up. I'm here to point them toward truth. So, so when Luther nails his 95 thesis to the Wittenberg door on Hallow's Eve 1517, he's reading the scripture. He's studying the book of Romans that were justified by faith. And all of a sudden he's like, man, we've got to talk. Because there's so many era uh, of, of being presented, and, and I want a dialogue. And they're like, we, we want to kill you. We're not going to change who we are. So how do you know if certain teachings are false? Come on. I went to Walmart this week, and they don't sell these things. I'm looking at Bed Bath & Beyond. I'm getting me one. I'm going to put this on my desk. If y'all got an extra one, just hook a brother up. But I do, I want one just as a constant reminder, man. Let's keep sifting through this. Here's here's an interesting thought. Here's some of the claims. The Catholic Church claims to be the one true church. If you read their positional statement, 
This is the traditional Catholic teaching on the moral duty of individuals and societies toward the true religion and the one true church of Christ. It requires them to make known the worship of the one true religion which only exists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church. I've met people over the years and say, they've told me this. I was getting ready to, to, to fly back to Atlanta one time from Philadelphia. And the lady at the counter says, uh, so you're going back home? And I said, yeah, I've been up here doing a, a Christian outreach. She says, do you belong to the true church? I said, define what you mean by that. And I looked at her and I said, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. Let, let's define this properly. I, def- I belong to the true church. I belong to the true church of Jesus Christ. Now, I belong to the true one. What you just defined is not accurate. When Jesus says, Peter, who am I? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, Peter, upon that rock, upon that statement, I'm going to build my, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Peter, that is the bolder statement. I am the Christ, the son of the living God. Yes. He didn't say, Peter, I'm going to build it on you, and you'll be uh, later on kind of uh, labeled as the first pope. Peter was married. His mother-in-law got sick. He wasn't celibate. Praise the Lord. Man, I'm, I, I, I'm sorry. All right, so here we go. <laughs> the Catholic Church claims to be infallible, which means the teachings do not fall. The teachings are established and are of God. Listen to this. The supreme degree of participation in the authority of Christ is ensured by the charism or the extraordinary power of infallibility. This infallibility extends as far as divine revelation without which the saving truths of the faith cannot be preserved, explained, or observed. So the Catholic Church says we are infallible. We don't, make, we, we don't have any errors. We don't have any mistakes. What we say is truth. I, 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 I struggle with that. I struggle with any church saying that everything they do is infallible. We're going to do some things at times here. It's going to be head scratchers. And you're going to look at us going, are y'all nuts? And we're going to all look at you and go, we are, but we're trying. Okay? We are, but we're trying. But there's no church group that is totally infallible. The word of God is infallible. The truths that God has laid out are infallible. Jesus, again, said, I'm going to build my church. He didn't say that. He didn't say, look at this Catholic church. Look at this teaching over here. The Catholic church claims to have the authority to interpret Scripture. They claim that they're the only ones that can interpret Scripture. Catechism, again, paragraph 100. The task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, the pope and the bishops in communion with him. So what they're saying is, if you go back and study church history in the Catholic church back in the 1400s, 1500s, they would have a podium and the Bible would be chained to the podium. And the only person that had a copy of the scripture in the Catholic church was that priest. They didn't want, none of the people had copies of the scripture. None of them did. And what they said is only that guy, the priest, the Pope, he is the only one capable of opening the word and telling us what it means. Man, that puts that guy in a position to fail. The Pope is the head of the church and has the same equal authority as Jesus Christ. 
Again, paragraph 2034, the Roman pontiff, the pope, and the bishops are authentic teachers, and they are endowed with, with the authority of Jesus Christ. That scares me. Whatever you say has the same authority as Jesus, it does not. It does not. Who is the head of the church? Jesus. Colossians 1 says all things were made by him and for him and through him and nothing has come into being except what he's made. He is before all things. He holds all things together. Who's the head of the church? Jesus. Does he have any equals? No. No. And even God would say, I'm a jealous God and I don't share my glory with anybody. And so as soon as you elevate any man to that position, man, you're on a slippery slope. The Roman Catholic Church says we are necessary for salvation. All salvation comes from the church that is the head. Through the, uh, it comes through Christ who is the head through the church, which is the body. And we base ourselves on scripture and tradition and the counsel that the church is necessary for salvation. Read it. You've got to have the church. You've got to have the, the authority. This is interesting. Jesus says, and even Paul writes in uh, Acts 4. Probably Luke probably wrote it. But he says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven wherefore and whereby we must be saved. How do you get saved? By faith in Jesus and him alone. So this is all teaching for you today. This is necessary as we deal in this postmodern culture. The Catholic Church teaches that sacred tradition is equal with Scripture. The church to whom the transmission and the interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths totally from the word of God. Do what? We do not derive what we believe just from the word of God. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. And so as soon as you get there, you're on a slippery slope. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. And so I do not believe that Jesus is entrusted to any other person. This, what I say, is just as equal with what Jesus says. As soon as you enter that, you're going to see yourself, man, entering some slippery style teaching. The forgiveness of sin, salvation is by, by works. They also teach that grace can be earned. That's a fundamental teaching, which is a contradiction of the, even the term grace. They say, moved by the Holy Spirit and charity, we can merit for ourselves and for others salvation and sanctification. Grace means unmerited, undeserved favor. You don't deserve it. When you say that you have to work to get something that is already free, it's a contradiction. Get into the teaching of a penance. Penance is where after you've been baptized as an infant, now, Catholics do infant baptism, meaning shortly after birth, they do the sprinkling or whatever. And their teaching is it cleanses you from original sin. Scripture doesn't say baptize an infant like that. It says be baptized after you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Repent and be baptized. So penance is where you have to go to a priest and he makes intercession to the Father on your behalf. Some of you all know this. And so they teach penance that, man, after you have been baptized and you sin, you've got to have this other dude over here and you've got to get him to go to God. No. Purgatory. They teach purgatory that it's a place of purging and suffering. And so after you die, you now go to this holding tank and you could be a hell raiser. But if you were baptized into the church, you're in this place of purging for a period of time. 
Now, other people through their indulgences is another thing that is taught. If they do enough Hail Marys and fire up enough candles and maybe stroke a few checks, your state in purgatory can be reduced and you can go to God. All of these notes are going to be on the website where you can look at what the Catholic Church teaches. So you get into penance, you get into purgatory, you get into indulgences. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That is a cool way to raise money, especially in the South. Because you go to Bubba's family, man, and you go, dude, let me tell you what happened to him. You know he was drunk as a skunk when he got killed. But if you will write a check for five years at this amount, I think we can get him into heaven. Mike McCoy, who grew up in the Catholic Church, Mike McCoy, who was a, 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 who's a good friend of mine, Consensus All-American at Notre Dame, he said the teachings of indulgence was a moneymaker for the Catholic Church when it was first instituted. Are you bashing the Catholics? I've got a lot of friends that are Catholic. But what I'm saying is, study to show yourself approved unto God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, one who can rightly and accurately handle the word of God. So any teaching that comes my way, I want to pour it in here. Acts 17, 11, those in Berea were much more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they examined the scriptures carefully daily to see if what was being taught was truth or not. Is it important to sift through? How about transubstantiation, where the elements of bread and the element of the cup becomes the actual body of Jesus? They at the Council of Trent, the Council of Florence, other places, they came up with this teaching to say, here's what we're going to stand on. When you take communion and the priest anoints this communion wafer and cup, you're not just receiving a wafer symbolic or a cup symbolic of the body and blood. You are actually receiving Jesus into your system. That's a violation of John chapter 6. And that's where they kind of draw some of that teaching from. Is it important to know what you believe? Yes. It is it important to know that Jesus plus nothing equals completion? Yes. Is it important in this polytheistic kind of belief world we find ourselves in all these pluralistic style thought processes that are going on? Do, do I really need to know what I believe and why I believe and how I've struggled to get to that belief? Yeah. Do we really believe that God is freeing people up here week after week and getting people unlocked so that Jesus is enough? Yeah, my, my, my friend told me the other day, he said, every time we leave here, wife had some Catholic background and some AG background or whatever. He said, every Sunday we leave, man, she goes, I'm getting freer in Christ. Why? Because Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. He didn't say tradition shall set you free. He didn't say the opinions of others shall set you free. He, he didn't say him plus doing another 613 commands based on the rabbinical law of even the Pharisees will set you free. He goes, you come to me, man, and I want to set you free. So my encouragement to you, some of you have got family that are involved with Catholicism. Don't, don't beat them over the head. That's not the goal, but just share. Ask if you can share the hope that you have and just say, would you permit me to just look at what is biblical truth? What are some of the traditional teachings? And can, can, can we get back to what God has to say? So the whole movement that started in 1517 with Luther was called the protesters that were the Protestants. 
I'm not protesting anything now. I'm just contesting the fact that Jesus is Lord and Jesus really does love and salvation is found in him. I'm not here to beat you over the head, but I'm here to share the truth with you in love. Hopefully that you'll come to know how powerful this king is. Let's pray. 